welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and carbon zero goals. Um, yeah, you organised this one, Sarah. Yeah, so we have some great minds talking uh, this week, kind of about tools, right? Kind of about retrofit tools. We've got Marina Tapuzzi, Dr. Marina Tapuzzi from Oxford University, who I imagine is another person who what she doesn't know about the risks in retrofit isn't worth knowing. And she has been instrumental in building a retrofit risk management app. Um, but we also had Nigel Griffiths of the STBA, the Sustainable Traditional Buildings Alliance. And again, just somebody who knows an awful lot about this territory. But what's really interesting about what Nigel has to say is that he keeps coming back to how broad a reach that retrofit potentially has. And he's written a really interesting paper, which you can find on their website called, um, oh gosh, Retrofit to Regeneration, I think. Oh, sorry, Nigel. <laughs> From Retrofit to Regeneration. So yes. the, it's called From Retrofit to Regeneration, a Blueprint for Post-COVID Recovery. So that's yeah. up on the Sustainable Traditional Buildings Alliance website. Yeah, I mean, we covered, I mean, we talked about health, we talked about retrofit, we talked about the usual challenges, but we talked about heritage a bit for a change. Mm-hmm. Not a massive amount, but man, it was another wide-ranging, meandering conversation. And we barely got to talk about the app. I mean, professionally, that's the bit I was most interested in. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll get to pick up with her elsewhere. Yeah, I think so. And I think another crucial bit that we kind of were talking about was the opportunity that exists within our industry for collaboration and for helping some of this work reach much broader audiences because, you know, the STBA also have their guidance wheel, which is sitting there on their website for anybody to use, which is, again, another risk management tool that is really, really good, particularly in the context of heritage buildings where we're always talking about managing risk. And yeah, just the work that that Marina and her team are doing. And they're all, they're, they're such good folk and they're there ready and listening, ready and able to share and collaborate and talk. So I think that's really encouraging as well. And it won't be the last time that we speak to them. So yeah. Yeah, man. Um, all right. So uh, from our side, it was me, Sarah and Jeff. Yeah. Duncan was waylaid and Alex was ill. Marina and Nigel. Yeah. In the meantime, I've got a few asks, which we don't normally do. If we could get people rating the podcast, I believe five-star ratings do make a difference in terms of reach. Subscribe if you aren't already. That helps mm-hmm. in terms of getting it in front of other people. And the thing we never asked to do, bizarrely, is for <laughs> folks to share the podcast. <laughs> if you think it's worth listening to, chances are your peers will. Yeah. So tell them about it. I mean, we're not doing, we're not making money out of this, but no. it's something we're, we believe in and folk need to hear about it. Yeah. Anyway, and the back catalogue is really, really good as well. I've been sharing some recent or not so recent episodes on LinkedIn for people. Just like some stuff on there is just so interesting for anybody who's like exploring their knowledge in retrofit. So and other things, but yeah. Yeah, man. And uh if there's if you think there's anyone we should be speaking to, uh email us at zeroambitionspodcast at gmail.com. I mean, we'll do our best. And if it is interesting, I mean we've got a whole bunch of stuff lined up. But uh, we're just interested in the stuff. So send for our way. Anyway, right, enjoy. So what happened was a little while ago, I feel like it was probably a couple of weeks ago at this stage, um, Marina and Nigel, we had a chat with Duncan and Peter. Was, was Peter on our call? Peter Rickaby, was he on our call as well? 
I don't think he was meant to be, but couldn't he didn't make it. Make oh, that's right. That's right. Um, and we were just talking about the work that Marina is doing, work that Nigel's done. We've all shared your um, retrofit regeneration uh, paper around as well, Nigel. Oh, great. Um, because there were a lot of common themes coming up between what we always end up talking about on podcasts and the stuff that like Nigel has has written about extensively and STBA, the work that they do, and then Marina developing the Eco Retrofit app. And there was just so much overlap that it just seemed like a natural thing that we had to get these people on the podcast. Yeah. Um, Peter Rickaby, he started foreshadowing the fact that you're working on an app as well, which peaked. Mine and Alex's interest as UX fellows working in this industry. Oh, another thing to look at. Oh, <laughs> that sounds interesting. So yeah, perhaps we we might cover it today, I suppose. But uh, oh, I'd definitely love to talk to you about it some other time. Yeah, likewise with the magazine. <laughs> well, should we just crack on then? Because yeah. I think that's an interesting place to start. Like for me personally, so I co-founded the company that, or the magazine that became Passive House Plus with Jeff long, long time ago, and. We approached the subject quite cynically. 20% of the Irish economy was construction. So we thought, we'll have a piece of that. We'll try and sell advertising against that. And uh, the only people who would talk to us were the green building people and uh, the conservation and built heritage people, because no one was listening to them. And that's an interesting place to have started. Like The conservation seemed to grow a little less important. There seemed to be less money involved in it from an advertising perspective for the magazine. Jeff, you're welcome to correct me on that as the years progressed but we've reached a point now where where one is tackling retrofit like i'm thinking back to the conversation we had with peter rickaby where he he was just bemoaning the absolute problems you've got with retrofitting any property when it's in a conservation zone because it limits what you're able to do and when we were working on the lebd the low energy building database user research we spoke to an architect passive house architect who bemoaned the extra degrees of calculations you have to go into creating when you're dealing with an old, irregularly sized property. It just makes life so much harder. It's and not going heard... anywhere, though, is it? You know, no. like, this is the reality of the built environments around us. And I think yeah. like this is what's useful about some of the writings and research and things that the STBA have done is that they embrace it. I actually find your writings um, and the reports to be quite refreshing and quite uplifting, if I'm honest, like when it comes into that, because there can be, like you say, Dan, a lot of like, oh my goodness, it's so hard. It's like, well, it is what it is. And this is how you go about it. <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of passive house um, buildings. The the kind of the system dictates the form to a degree. And um, that, that that can miss all kinds of aspects of, of beauty and livability, which our, our forebears, I think, really got. And that's why that these uh, humble terrace streets, for the most part, are still, you know, very much buildings in in demand. I mean, they're little tardises mostly. Um, you, you really don't expect the amount of space that you find in them, and the privacy and the light. Um, they were very, very smart, I think, um, in in the Victorian Edwardian era. It's an interesting point there, Nigel. I think um, a lot of passive house projects can be very, very heavily informed by, an, you know hitting the targets and uh, and a lack of consideration for, for, for other aspects. That is changing, I think. Um, and uh, there have been some exceptional examples. I mean, look, I suppose I suppose it's partly down to the, you know, down to people having other concerns beyond just passive house too. But I should say as well that, you know, we, we try to take the approach, even at the magazine, that 
you know, you don't want to be fundamentalist about any of these things. Um, we, you know, you try to be pragmatic and passive house, you know, with lots of existing buildings, is it's just not going to be the solution. It's not going to be possible. It's not going to be appropriate. But there are things you can, we can learn from it and and from approaches like that. And from, that, you know, even from, from that fidelity to kind of a evidence-based approach um, and the, whether, whether you achieve the targets in passive house or not, you know. Um, you know, we see in this area... I think partly because there's a lot of misunderstanding as well um, about building physics and about the terminology that's used. Um, it feels to me like a lot of the a lot of the, the the notional disagreements that are or the agreement disagreements that are out there. You know, breathability would be a great case in point. That's one of the kind of subjects that's very often misunderstood. People people think about breathability as being about air movement, and really it's about it's a, sweatability is probably a better word. You know, for it, it's a bit, a bit grosser, but but probably you heard better. it here first. Yeah, <laughs> you know, of buildings. <laughs> it sounds better than vapor diffusion. You know, openness or whatever. You know, uh, it's, it's just in trying. Well, it makes it understandable. Yeah, exactly. Like, you, you get it when you have to think about a building sweating. But 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 it, it is interesting. But I'd love to know, Nigel, about how how you see these these aspects interfacing and how far you think we can, we can push the fabric in uh, in existing buildings, for instance, without doing something that's dangerous from, say, an uh, uh, interstitial condensation risk perspective or would that be doing something that's inappropriate uh, to the heritage of the building? I, th- I think that's that's half the question. I think the, the other part of that same question needs to address embodied energy. And there, yeah. c- there comes a point, and, uh, and Kevin McLeod made this point when he looked at the first passive house in the UK, so surely there comes a point where the impact of all this extra insulation outweighs what it's going to save in practice. So... I think that's very, very important. And we're working on a calculator at the moment that will enable you to compare the embodied energy of certain key measures with what they save in the practice. And mm. There's a lot of assumptions that are going to need to be made in the process. But I think that the simple question is worth asking. And, and, and the other, to, to answer the first part of your question about how far one goes, I think every building should be as efficient as it, as it can reasonably be. But I think we're trying to achieve a lot of different things when we retrofit buildings. And that's why I was so, so delighted that uh, Sarah shared the paper on, on regeneration, because where we, we tend to come unstuck in not just this, but many other areas of society is where we get terribly narrow aims. And if we if we broaden those aims to, to include, in our case, I think genuine sustainability, then it becomes a, a question of what sort of tomorrow we want to bequeath to our, our um, children, our children's children. And that, for me, has to include beauty for a start. I mean, I, um, I, I have upset people by saying if the world isn't beautiful and fun to live in, then I don't want to stick around and save the planet. You know, it, it's got to be lovely. It's got to be fun. And I think that's um, we, we we miss that that sometimes. But if we're going to retrofit buildings, let's also do water efficiency. Let's do sustainable drainage. Let's see what we can do for local employment and and uh, to stimulate the local economy. Because I've always said the best way to address uh, fuel poverty is to address poverty. So you know you can use retrofit as an agent of regeneration and achieve an awful lot of, of social and economic uh, goals at the same time. But we've got now this this fourth pillar added to. Uh, the three pillars of sustainability, so that the fourth pillar being culture. Mm. And that's where I think traditional buildings play a, play a great part. But to, um, to go on from your point about the breadth of issues that this can cover to also allow like the maximum impact from engaging with it. So we all know that like 27, 28, 20 million homes, however many there are that need to be retrofitted is absolutely impossible going down the routes that we've currently got and following a definition, a sort of a technocratic definition of what retrofit is. And so it's a sort of a loser's game 
before we've even started out. And um, but if you expand the reach, and this is the bit like we talk around this as well a bit about when people talk about the co-benefits of retrofit, and we argue they're not co-benefits of retrofit, they're front and center principal benefits of retrofit. And actually, retrofit is just the lens to look at all these other wider ranging problems through. And so if you then expand the reach of what you're trying to achieve through retrofit, you're also exploring common ground between different people's perspectives or different people's capacities to affect positive change in that space. And that's where it gets, I think, really interesting. That's where the kind of the innovation and excitement can be because it isn't just like a new product or a new installation or a new what can we add to this but like how do we rethink this because it has to be re rethought about if we're going to make any headway into the improvements that we're legally you know obliged to make and morally obliged to make I suppose yeah um, it's very interesting uh, what uh, Nigel said uh, one thing that I have uh, to to add is that um, as Jeff mentioned, it's very fundamentalist, the approaches that very often we hear around. We hear about, about passive house standards, we hear about fabric first, we hear about a rollout of uh, heat pumps, and it's very often it feels like it is either or. What we need is a critical, and I, I will use uh, uh, the quote from Bill Borders that he, he said, understanding first. So traditional buildings is to understand first our building stock and our supply chain capacity and our materials and our standards is to understand first we very often say one solution doesn't fit all and it's very true but <laughs> we tend to um, forget that so indeed different traditional buildings uh, need to be understood what they need and if the fabric first cannot fit the purposes of retrofit, then perhaps technology or the network might uh, fit um, uh, that. So it's understanding uh, first, as uh, Bill Borders says, and I will totally agree with him. I just read a paper by Bill, actually a, a presentation, and he quoted um, the historic England architect, uh, Robin Pender. Uh, who is excellent on all this this stuff. And she talks about old buildings in a way and says, we've forgotten how to sail these buildings. And she talks about the way people used to, to dress differently uh, and rely much more on radiant heat than, than kind of constant indoor air temperatures. If you were cold, you moved closer to the fire. And if you were too hot, you, you moved away. There, there are different ways of living in old buildings. I'm not suggesting that we're going to all go back to the uh, 19th century but um, we, we can <laughs> I think we can do more and this winter may be a good test with the fuel prices being, being as, as exorbitant as they are I'm actually more worried about about people in early 20th century early and mid 20th century buildings who I think will suffer worse in, in terms of damp and, and cold if you don't heat those buildings adequately um, they, they'll really start to bite you. Yeah. I would worry in, in some of these older buildings too and it's not just period buildings you know kind of victorian or earlier or whatever um i mean I, my son's got asthma for instance and um we've been serial tenants because of my amazing lack of success in business uh over the years and we've always rented everywhere we've lived in um we've always had mold problems to some extent because you know you've got a family um you're you, you're invariably you're hanging clothes indoors uh to dry and stuff like that um and you know whether it was Homes built in the Celtic Tiger years in Ireland, which are thrown up appallingly badly, um, 
or, uh, or, or I'm trying to think, of, I don't think we've lived in anything that predated 1900s, but a, a pretty broad range of homes. And, um, you know, wherever we've been, even staying with uh, my my uh, my mother-in-law now in her again Celtic Tiger uh, bungalow, you can see uh, his symptoms tend to flare up. And we're now living; we're renting a, a low-energy, airtight apartment with uh, with MBHR. Uh, it's not it's not a passive house, but it's in that kind of area. You know, it's, it's not far away from it. And he's he's just much. You know, we don't burn anything. I mean, so we're not combusting anything in the air that we're sitting in. You know, uh, that to me seems like a real problem and um, even with a sealed stove i would be concerned about it because i've been in homes where we've had sealed stoves and where you're you know where where you, you you you're trying to operate the fire and you're refueling and you get smoke coming in and you know it's uh, that that would be one particular concern i would have uh, the temperatures and then um and then uh the air quality in some of the, these older buildings i don't know how you reconcile that in 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 older buildings and people's romantic notions about uh, how buildings should should be you know well you're talking about it's uh, Marina's point about how the buildings are used, how you sail a building. I like that. There's, there's something quite romantic about it. But what you're describing is like the older buildings that were built with uh, combustion systems that were essential to their health. So, you know, the, the, the fires throughout the building ensure the airflow through the building. So you've got plenty reliable changes, drafty buildings supported by roaring fires. It's not ideal that it, it, by today's reckoning but man it worked for a long time then you can shift what forward you to, it works though you can well it, it did the job it needed to like it, it wasn't necessarily efficient but it didn't have to be because we weren't fretting about those concern, concerns then then you can switch up to industrial terraced houses where you've industrialized the creation of caves for serfs to live in and it was adequate and they found ways around those through the, the way communities uh, existed so, you know, you had public houses where people weren't necessarily drinking. They were just sharing body heat and entertainment. And you had homes with many more people in them, which were heating themselves in a different degree. They were leaky and drafty. So you had a, a decent air change. Then you can fast forward to the, the 80s, where all of a sudden you've got this big shift in building where it's about asset creation. Mm-hmm. And so the use of the building is as a store of wealth rather than a place to be lived in. And that mm-hmm. continues right up until today when... What's curious about what you were describing there is you've you're, you're renting an apartment in a building where its differentiator from an asset sales perspective is that it's low energy and improved health. So that's a differentiator when you look at it in terms of its its place as an asset and its place within the asset buying ecosystem. Where in Ireland in particular, especially around Dublin, you've got private equity firms buying up assets like that because their prime goal is to rent them for the highest possible value they can extract from the rental market. How do you do that? You luxury. You can't do it too high because you're not going to be able to rent out to people uh, at the the highest possible rate as reliably because you want something towards the middle of the market. And so you've got this whole new range of stuff being created to satisfy the needs of the users. It's just at different points in history, you have different users of assets. You know, you've got homes, status symbols, stores of wealth, and then uh, rental extraction units. They're different things. Like It's a fundamental category error to consider them all the same object. And that's why like the block I live in at the moment, it's the 70s block, and you've really got to manage it properly. Like I'll let a lesson off of the, the lady who lives two doors, two floors down from me. She grew up in Belgrade, and she lived in apartment buildings. And when she came to the UK having spent 20 or 30 years in Australia, 
she instinctively kicked into her communist era apartment ventilation management system where you don't shut all the heat in all the time. You don't close all the doors to prevent air circulation. You ensure there's air circulation in the bits of the apartment you're not in at that time. And when you go out, you make sure it's all open. Then as soon as you get back in, you shut all the non-essential or the essential bits and you start heating the bits you're in again to ensure a constant change of airflow. And that way she's mitigated any damp. But the last who lived next door to her, she lived with black mold because she was out a lot of the time. She never left her windows open. And when she was in, just as she said, she was washing clothes and absolutely refused to accept ventilating the place was her responsibility. And that's in part, not just because it's a 70s build, but because the whole block, because of a, a gas explosion at some point in the, the 70s or 60s, had to be heated by electricity. And so there was an air heating system throughout the whole block, which got taken out for most of the apartments and placed with central heating which changed the way the whole building worked. And Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because what you're talking about, what we're kind of veering into is like people's understanding of how a building works, which sort of touches back on the basic building's physics lacking, not just through, I mean, we're not talking about every occupant understanding basic building physics, but even designers don't understand basic building physics. And we've that's, that's a theme that's come up again rather terrifyingly. So if we're faced with understanding that these are living, breathing buildings with living, breathing occupants, given the fluctuation in context of which we're all living. <laughs> it's a really sticky place to work, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it goes back to the issue of transforming uh, occupants' values and to learning and educate them what is the environmental, the indoor environmental qualities that they need to ask and um, have in their uh, indoor environment. So it's a matter of education. And I think apart all the negative, because there are a lot of negative and problems in, in retrofit, there is also a window of opportunity. There is space to educate people to need a f- a, a cleaner inside their house need an airtight and well heated um, indoor environment. So it's just learning and changing, uh, educating them, and setting a different bar of values. How do we do that? It's a million dollar question, right? Because it is, I think, what comes up again and again that bit around educating and empowering homeowners and questioning whether or not people even understand how their boiler works. We've talked to Joelle Alsop a while back from the Heating Hub, and she's explained very clearly that not only are people's boilers probably oversized, but on top of that, their flow temperatures are particularly over high. They're wasting energy. It's not the most comfortable way to use it. You're going from zero to 90 and back again. It's not an efficient way of using our, our system. So we're not even capable of understanding how that system works and on top of that you layer that with the cultural bit of the which we've talked about before with Alex's gran I think almost like kicking him out of the house for daring to touch her thermostat in case he broke it because if he broke it then she'd have to have somebody to come out to carry out expensive boiler repairs and there's this like fear of the unknown around it. It's exactly that, uh, developing a good experience and user satisfaction. So what we have in deep retrofits and what we find out in research, let's take the retrofit for the future example, occupants that they had responsive systems, yeah, and they have achieved their comfort, they were satisfied. So for them, retrofit were 
quite high value. People that they had a negative experience, they couldn't understand. Unresponsive system, maloperation for different technical reasons due to installation and so on. We know the problems. Then the experience for them and retrofit doesn't mean anything. Mm. Uh, so we need we have that model that we said we need retrofit at scale and i i insist and i say we need at scale at speed but mostly at quality because when we have retrofit environments that they achieve good quality indoor quality then are the positive experience just to add to, to that the the scale is is happening currently under the social housing decarbonisation fund where I'm one of the government's two technical experts and I mean that's doing a great job I mean looking at all kinds of properties um, and and up, upgrading them but you know we're working according to PAS twenty thirty five which uh, Marina knows very well and I'm, we're on the steering group for that was it was hard work getting that through with a lot of objections from industry. We wanted to carry on doing things as they've always done them. One of the things we absolutely insisted on was, was ventilation. That, uh, there had to be an assessment of existing ventilation before you start retrofitting the building uh, and after, so that you know that you know you've provided adequate fresh air and it can't you know, the, the paths you've actually created can't be turned off. If we are going to operate buildings in this rather more hermetically sealed way, then, then I think this is the only way forward. Um, the Victorians, as, as you've earlier pointed out, just got around it by building leaky buildings so you know they stayed they stayed dry or dry enough uh, to remain healthy um because they had sufficient air exchange but now we've, we've actually got to build it in to, to our retrofitted more modern buildings especially on that point nigel um do you think it's uh, reasonable or right to to kind of talk about existing buildings even traditional buildings as a kind of you know as if they've got because they're all different um yeah. as if as if they have uniform characteristics i'm just thinking that we know we know that a lot of existing buildings are very leaky um, mm. and we know that aside from unintended leakage through infiltration um that they have you know the way you operate them with sash windows and, and chimneys and so on that they're that they're that you have capacity subject to temperature and wind and so on these, these variables um you have the capacity for a lot of ventilation but we also have some empirical data indicating that that's that some existing houses are actually remarkably airtight you know uh wet plastered walls for instance are, yes. are airtight walls so i'm always a bit wary about making assumptions uh that you know like uh, how you do this i don't know because when you're talking about these things if you add the caveats that i'm talking about you end up uh, turning a, a, a 10 seconds uh you know, <laughs> sentence into a 10 minute conversation and i'm very adept at doing that evidently you know um but um it just feels to me like we, you know, I don't think we understand, and forgive my ignorance in this regard, because I'm not close enough to it, but I don't feel like there's enough uh, scrutiny played to understanding uh, how existing buildings work. And certainly the industry isn't, isn't anywhere near uh, aware enough of this. And, you know, what there's a lot of untested assumptions. We, te we tend to be better at, at scrutinizing the new shiny thing, you know, yes. um, and, and uh, ignoring uh, maybe what we what we've been doing, you know. Um, so, well, yeah, well, that's absolutely right. I and mean, Colin King, some of you may know, has been very clear for many years. We've, we, 
we've got to do the science first before we start making wholesale recommendations on changing the building stock. And we don't really know how our buildings function as they are, let alone how they're going to function when we make really very significant changes to them. And I'm afraid something like Grenfell is, is the natural consequence of that kind of totally ill-informed approach. And, you know, we've been saying for years that something like this could happen. And, you know, a combination of systems that, that never should have should have been put together in, in that way. That's right. But, it's yeah. the systems point, isn't it, Nigel? That's the word. That word, systems, is the bit that's not... It's it's. We even talk about retrofit in terms of measure, measures, right? Ind- mm. Individual measures, yeah. like, and not about systems, not so, about the whole approach. Where we have to start is with not only, you know, what sort of a building it is and, what data we have on how such materials behave, but also what the condition is. So, and there's no point looking at internally insulating a wall if you've got, you know, faults in the exterior skin, you've got to repoint it. So we have, there is a requirement for individual survey, every building is different. So individual survey for all kinds of buildings in past 2035. The idea behind that is it picks up condition issues, it picks up ventilation issues. Um, and it, you're quite right. Uh, you know, if you look, um, as you said, Jeff, at a, a traditional building, some of them might have very airtight windows. Some of them may even have been retrofitted with a, a draft brushproof strips. Some of them will, of course, be, have been UPVC, probably the majority now. And the UPVC windows don't leak a lot, but you know they could have seals around the edges, which are you know, missing, damaged, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and the degree of ventilation in those windows is sometimes it's zero, and uh, sometimes they have trickle vents. So you've got to actually assess what you've got there to, to start off with, and you can't develop a strategy, a medium-term retrofit plan for a building until you know exactly what you've, you're dealing with. And even two apparently homogenous buildings and ter- terrace buildings are, are great for this. It can behave very, very differently. It's not just occupancy. Some of them may have been extended at the rear. Some of them have been loft converted. You name it. There's been so many changes done to um i keep banging on about traditional buildings but you know that they, they are very adaptable in that sense um but very different from each other so this raises a point broader point for me which is um when i watched i watched news night the other night uh no sorry question time um and uh it was last night yeah um and uh there was discussion invariably around uh, energy security and you know in, in light of the, the coming winter and so on Energy efficiency didn't get mentioned once. Um, people were talking about, you know, uh, fracking, about uh, about renewables and the intermittency issues and so on. Um, there was no discussion around energy efficiency. Um, and uh, for many of the political parties, the, the Lib Dems, uh, Labour, and the and the Tories were all there, um, along with the Brexiter, a Brexiteer or whatever. Um, and uh, that I found kind of very disheartening. And I just wonder, you know, we're, what we're talking about here. I mean. Effectively, what, what what I'm understanding from what you're saying, um, and what I think generally, um, and this is my own view anyway, is that there aren't really any shortcuts here. You know, we 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 need to to do properly rigorous assessments, but we need to want it first. And I think the dismay I have is that um, because this is hard uh, on one end, right? You know, to, to do and to do it right, and then on the other end, the political spectrum, they're not even talking about like. What chance do we have? Well, it, it is happening on the under the SHDF. But I mean, Marina put a finger on it earlier when she talked about training and capacity. So, at the moment, we've got an immediate, urgent issue, and 
retrofits a long-term game, as, as you rightly point out. And we've got to build up those those capacities. I mean, starting off with capacity in surveying, because it's no use sending out a DEA to look at uh, the majority of buildings. You need somebody who understands the pathology of buildings mm. um, and who, who will pick up all these condition issues. And then we've got to train a whole army of installers, you know, in, in not only in insulation, but also in ventilation and uh, possibly heat pumps as well. If, if we do go down that route, I'm not, I'm not yet 100% convinced. But and then Marina, you- was that what you had in mind? People tend to understand the assessment and the urgency for that diagnostic first stage uh, when you make the analogy with a medical condition. So if you are a patient, you won't take a medication by your own. You will go to your GP. uh, You will have some tests. Someone will examine you, x-rays, whatever is needed, and then it will come the planning and the treatment. So it's exactly the same thing for a building. We are trying to give medication understand without understanding what are the pathologies or with a very superficial assessment, whether it's online and never being on, on, uh, on the building, in the building on site to see what are the pathologies. I've done some work uh, in the past years updating the RIBA plan of work, uh, highlighting the first stage, the assessment, how important it is in retrofit. That cannot start without it. But also adding two more steps. The one is when we are doing the decluttering, when the works are starting, and then we know all of us how retrofit are hiding surprises. You are lifting a the boards from the floor and you find something that it wasn't expected to be there yeah and another step it's not that it's it's a circle it's a not a linear process the retrofit it doesn't end at the delivery when we talk about a whole system then we need to to integrate in that circle the final step which is the repair and maintenance because in 10 years time when things are are starting need maintenance and you need to start changing things in your house these will have interact. So the interfaces and how systems interact are hiding all these risks. So it's a circle. And these diagnostics, whether it come in a repair and maintenance or when we start the retrofit or in the middle before the construction and the actual world, we need to have them. And what it suggests is that we need to have communicate feedback loops with do retrofit and we are not getting back how they perform. That doesn't help uh, 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 informing uh, uh, the, the the knowledge and the skills of the of the construction sector as well. What you're describing sounds brilliant. I love the fact that you're both talking about pathology as well, and I love the fact that this term is creeping more into our discussion around around construction. Um, you know, for me, when we when you talk about things like building physics and you talk about a situation where where uh the industry has been producing uh a lot of mistakes in buildings or you know misguided decisions for existing buildings and new buildings too pathology becomes very relevant and and and, and i think part of this is, is about engaging with people and getting them to understand that you know for the workforce we're looking for and just to grab people's attention uh, uh uh, their conception of what construction is needs to change. And I think you'll attract a lot more people uh, to, to the industry 
if they're thinking about it in terms of it being a STEM subject, if, if you think about it being, you know, this is uh, about uh, whether it's whether you whether you borrow from medical science, for instance, whether you appeal to people's people who like procedural detective shows and watching, you know, about murders, investigate crime scene investigations, that kind of stuff. That I think is it becomes much more engaging and interesting, lowering to to talk about in those terms. So I'm delighted to hear it. You know. It does, and it comes back almost very neatly to what um, both Nigel and Marina opened with nearly about the conversation of, you know, more like engaging more fully with the full spectrum of what it means, of what retrofit can mean, so that you're sort of doing the engagement bit. It's 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 changing the value system as well. Like it's it's embed, like you, you talked about, well, we wouldn't do it to ourselves because maybe we value ourselves and understand ourselves better as a system. And we don't value our property because of the context that Dan was talking about in terms of it as an asset thing and not as a, as a place to survive and beyond survive, a place to thrive, which is, again, what Nigel was talking about, about this place needs to be fun. It needs to be beautiful. It needs to connect to me. I need to care about it. Like you said as well, Jeff, you know, people need to want this to happen as well. And so, yeah, it's sticky and it's awkward, but like, are we bored of that now? Are we bored of like keeping coming up and going, oh, but this is too hard. So we're going to stop. It isn't going anywhere. It isn't going anywhere. We can roll out all those old statistics of like, oh yeah, 80% of the buildings that are going to be around in 2050 are already here, blah, blah, blah. So it's not going anywhere. So let's just get on board with some of the like incredible work that both Nigel and Marina have been pushing forward. There's an elephant here though that's only scarcely been acknowledged. So when you look at social housing, the only reason that efforts are being made and change is being offered is because there's a bunch of money being dangled in front of people. Elsewhere, it doesn't matter. Like Jeff's properties, I because you've got a PE firm interested in buying properties, snapping them up by the, the block, not the unit. There's value in doing that because you know you can sell them for up to, what, 200% of market rate? If you're talking about retrofitting existing housing stock, certainly in England, it's going to get increasingly hard to make that work because people can't afford to buy homes and the market favours but like landlords. Increasingly, P firms and specialist uh, professional landlords were stepping into the market because you know the terms are more favourable. You can get an interest-only mortgage if you're a landlord and you can't... Uh, you can't do that if you're a first-time buyer. Like whatever, whatever nonsense that was offered in the budget today, you've got uh, a real you, you, problem. I, I don't think you made it to the Neil May Memorial Lecture, which was earlier this week at UCL in uh, in London. But it was about the whole housing supply problem and uh, and precisely that question of of it becoming an asset um, for for investment and so forth, and how that's bucked the market, and that's. Uh, it's a really yeah. big issue. I did want to add, though, that there is the private rented sector legislation, which does apply to, to buildings like Jeff's. And it is unfortunately framed around the, the wretched EPC, which um, <laughs> I don't like because well, yeah, it's, it, it's a misnomer for a start. Performance implies measurement, and it's there's no measurement <laughs> involved. It's just a model. Uh, and it's yeah. not even energy. It's the cost of energy, which is being used as the headline rate. So what we actually would like to see... It, because we're we're now using a whole building approach, is, is we'd like to see a whole building certificate rather than an EPC. So something that's actually a lot more useful. And the other thing is, sorry, I'll get off my high horse in a minute, but the no EPC form, yeah, we love high horses, hobby horses, the lot, <laughs> whatever, anything um, like that. 
but they're, they're being used as as um, as design tools. I mean, those recommendations on them are just frankly dangerous. And mm-hmm. They weren't intended for that purpose at all. The the Irish methodology, Nigel, uh, which is derived from SAP, it's the the, the state body that uh, that that's responsible for. It. Used to frequently say when 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 this question came up that it's not a design tool. And that, mm. that it's a compliance tool. That was the kind of distinction that was drawn. But of course, it's used as a design tool. Mm. You know, where, where you have an industry that is trying to get away with historically building the worst legal building that they're allowed to build, it's going to be used as the design tool. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you're basing your your building methodologies and strategies off of a scoring mechanism, ooh. Of course, people are going to game it, <laughs> like yeah. you're giving them the means to. And yeah. until until there's money involved in making ordinary people exceed standards, then we're on a hide into nothing. It's- but this is, it's also why it's important to reach farther when we're talking about um, retrofit, because if you start to engage the broadest range of people in this. So if you start to look at social care and health care and you start to actually really engage, not just quote stats about how, oh, actually living in a house like this, then your air quality is like that and it has this impact, but mm. actually getting buy-in from people. And it's a little bit like what um, the kind of mix and the exploring of how you fund this stuff that say Rufus Grantham and Bankers Out Boundaries are looking at about trying to like get different people to see, well, if you're benefiting from this, it should be part of your investment plan so that you can then continue to like um, improve in that space and integrate it more fully, you know, because if we don't do that and that has the impact of changing our value systems, of changing the way we see things, of of maybe pointing even more strongly to some of those problematic financial areas about like where the incentives are right now because they're not where they should be and we know that and it seems very, very hard to change that. But it is going to be hard to change it if we look at it to try and change it instead of offering a better alternative, a better solution. You're alluding to the, the comfort question, the comfort and health question, which is, I mean, both of them are fairly moot points at this stage because culturally we are, we don't expect to have comfort or health in the homes in which we live. That is not a, a concern. Like it's something we should, but it's just not feasible to to achieve it. And like with the concerns that we were talking about earlier with fuel poverty, energy cost crisis, people are going to be underheating their homes. That's going to have all sorts of issues. The opportunity there is so the the massive movements which are happening in social housing are partly as a consequence of this incoming crisis. Like people are mobilizing. Things are going to change because there are uh, legal requirements for housing associations and social housing providers, RSLs, to do so. They don't have a choice. They've got to make sure their business model relies on them doing a, a better job. And then if you go away to the able-to-pay market, in terms of something like passive house certification, there's a, a raft of retirees who who want a more comfortable home uh, or are concerned about energy prices or because of grandchildren's influence, they are thinking about uh, environmental concerns. And they're beginning to get stuck in. But then you've got all the other people who are suddenly going to have massive cost pressures put upon them uh, in terms of energy use, cost pressures put upon them in terms of labour and material scarcity. And we still need to get them to try and do something for their homes. Because we we talk at the start about we talked at the start about needing to improve energy efficiency. We also need to improve comfort, which could be an outcome, uh, a consequence of addressing that. But the means to do any of this stuff 
it's without of most people's reach. Like I'm, well, Cassie and I, my missus, we're buying a house and we are well aware that we're going to have to take care of the ventilation because there was a conservatory that was built in the 80s, which affects the ventilation under the floor and it's going to affect the way uh, the, the house itself is ventilated. There's insulation in the attic that's been put in, but I don't know what standard it's been put into. Need to check the roof, all that sort of stuff. There's all sorts of things we're going to need to address, but man, I don't know how I'm going to afford it or whether I'm going to be able to find the people to do it even on the South Coast. Anyone around Hastings, hit me up. We need a transformation. Uh, we need a transformation first into the retrofit market. Yeah, We need a service that takes the customer, the occupant, the homeowner uh, by the hand in all stages of the retrofit. That shows assessment, it's a must. You can't do anything in your building without getting that stage. You need a transformation in the standards. Uh, we can't say that all houses need to be passive house. There will be the passive house, there will be the deep retrofit, the fabric first, sallow retrofit, whatever, that's where understanding comes, whatever it needs to perform better. Um, we need a transformation also in, in the standards for training and accreditation. Uh, yeah, we, we have all these different trainings. What we are lacking is an accreditation that comes on site, people that they have the practical experience. I've been qualified as a retrofit coordinator. I have 10 years in my back working on site as an architect and 15 in this field of retrofit. Whether it's enough or not, I can understand that a person that is just uh, um, uh, qualified as an architect and qualified as a retrofit coordinator doesn't have the experience to understand all these different problems and risks that might find on site. So we need also in transformation on the communication, how policymakers communicate the different schemes. We need policy, a mixed policy. One policy doesn't fit all situations. We need different policies combined to be mixed and, and help people, whether it's the, 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 the sector or the householders. We need a mix of, of these. Um, so there is, it, it's a sector that needs to be transformed. We need transformation in different pieces of that uh, puzzle of uh, retrofit. You spoke about that with such passion I'm, and I love to hear it. And to me, it kind of kind of repeats these things around like, what? who wouldn't want to get involved and excited in that? This is a transformation. This is an opportunity to be like at the forefront of this place. Like all, you know, we've said before to, I did a talk to some students at LSA and I said to them, like, don't build anything new. And there was an architect who was like, that's really hard to hear. And I was like, it's not, it's not an architect. Like, does, you know, building new shiny things is not an architect. Like that doesn't make you an architect the way you think does. And if you're at the forefront of this place, I mean, how to be transformative in your industry, how incredible, like, why wouldn't you want to get involved in that? Does it pay? It can, well, it's up to us. We're at the forefront, <laughs> that's, that's right? The one. Yeah. Like, that, yeah. The, the difficulty is in the sense we, we We've all been asking the wrong questions. Well, we're doing our best within the environment that we're working within. It's very difficult to solve that that question of what do you do to an individual building when you are working within a whole system which fails. I mean, this whole thing about economic growth, I mean, it makes me very worried because 
growth doesn't value any of the things that the no. GDP doesn't value any of the things that really matter to us or our, no. our beautiful spaces, our parks, our mountains, mm. our clean rivers. That just doesn't get an economic value slapped on it. Well, so, Grenfell's a GDP boon, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose it is. I used to make the same analogy when talking about health. If somebody gets unhealthy and they get fixed, then then that actually increases GDP. We'd much rather they didn't get unhealthy in the first place. So um, how do we get away to that, that much more transformative question? I, I, as you rightly say, Sora, every, get everybody on board. But I think the way to do that is, is really to ask the question, what sort of tomorrow do we want? Mm-hmm. And then you, you end up talking about sustainable change, because how you actually make the change to a kind of post-industrial society, if you wanted a, a better word, I think could could have huge impacts and we, we actually want to minimize impacts and i was so you know the pandemic gave me hope in the sense of everybody working from home and just slowing down a bit and not rushing around so madly you know the way we live i think is it's it's kind of neurotically fast and we've got to find ways ways to transform our whole societies and live in our communities better again and uh, um, there's a bit in that regeneration paper about um, local decision making and about communities because I think that will ultimately hold the core to, you know, what are we going to do with our built environment? Also says, do we want to make take that redundant space and make it back into a community garden? That all that is part of the kind of holistic regeneration that I think we've we've got to put together, and that way we can get everybody on board, and you get community energy networks as well, and people helping each other. Mm. So there's a lot of labour out there that's not being used at the moment. It's far too many people with their feet up in front of the TV and they can actually get out and do something useful, I should think. We can help each other more and communities have got great resources that are underused. And we, we find that when we mobilise in the right way um, for a more charitable kind of project. And I would add, find something, as Nigel said, uh, from COVID, it was an experience. Uh, find something useful from the experience that we had. What it highlighted from COVID is the comfort levels. We had to be indoors. So comfort, suddenly people start understanding the indoor environment. We have the coming um, uh, fuel prices. Uh, We have the heat wave. So things are changing and we need to future-proof our buildings for um, uh, make them more resilient and also the occupants being more resilient as well. So these are experiences that uh, homeowners and occupants need to understand. Uh, going back to the values, it's it's it, they can be a tool of educating what indoor indoor uh, qualities we need to to, to have. I, I have think- to mention just because of what both Nigel and then Marina went on to talk about is the retrofit reimagined festival that was put on the summer past was asking exactly those questions. And we've been reflecting on it since the, the, the various um, participants and contributors to that about like, what do we do with this now? Because it isn't, it wasn't supposed to be a sort of a, Oh yeah, we, we talked about retrofit in a really beautiful field. We did. But it was more than that. It was asking the questions, changing the, the 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 perspective of the what is to the what if bit, and it's asking those bigger questions of, yes, this all needs to happen. Yes, in the context of of everything that's sort of collapsing around us, we've got these big questions to ask. But to what? What are we trying to transform or regenerate towards? It's not just how we're trying to fix these buildings or how we're trying to fix those things. It is those bigger questions. And I would like to encourage anybody who this is resonating with 
to look back at some of the pieces that we did around the Retrofit Reimagined Festival and see the patterns that are emerging between the work that's happening in places with the STBA, with what Marina is talking about and, and engaging on this other level in order to propel this, in order to get something that is about changing those systems that you were also mentioning um, as well, Dan. Because I think this is where we need to see the conversation happening in those really difficult and awkward and sticky places, because it won't be the one size fits all solution to come back to what you said earlier, Marina. It's about all of them. It's about all of the solutions and all of the ideas, but based around a set of values that that are transformative, I think. But values don't transform anything. Like as we were talking about GDP, it's only money and demand that transforms anything. It's only when there's demand that the supply side will get its arse in gear. And that's what we're seeing with the whole retrofit industry. (laughs) But it's I mean, look at the world around you. But you live through the summer, you're you're living through the current like the cost of existing crisis. Like we're in a parlous state, like I agree that all of the things you're saying are important. It's just they ain't feasible, not with this climate, with these two primary political parties who seem intent on doing nothing about the challenges that face us. But Jeff is in this vaunted position in Ireland where at least folk like Eamon and Ryan are doing something about it. But it might not be perfect, but here, like, no one's throwing any money at anything. No, no. Okay. But this where I don't completely disagree with you. I think values do change things because what you get is you get people gathering around a set of values or meeting around a set of values and starting to try and then work out what your action is around those sets of values. Kind of what Nigel was suggesting around the kind of energy that you see around more sort of community-based charitable action when people recognize that it's a big ruse that we've all been separated out as individuals to be able to have stuff sold to us, to keep us separate, to not be living together, to not have intergenerational living, to not have bigger, broader, messier spaces. That's a ruse that's been sold to us. And it's very successfully sold to us because yes, here we are sitting in the mire of that now dealing with it. But we won't change that by accepting it either. We will only change it by meeting with people. and, And if you have the capability to get active in those spaces or if you can encourage other people to get active in those spaces that's what we have to do that's what we have a, a responsibility to do like without wanting to use the specs or grenfell so flippantly like they campaigned for years in advance and there have been campaigns running for the years subsequent and sweet fa's happened and that that was like there's a monument in west london to the horror show that we're describing here and the conditions that we're living in now and they're going to get worse, but they're going to continue to be livable. It's only when people start to die out of penury that anyone might start to pay attention. Certainly, well, that's the way it seems. It won't be livable for this winter, for sure. You know. Well, I mean, this is the point. Yeah, it's only when bodies start piling up that folk will pay attention. And it's not poor people's bodies either, or immigrant people's bodies. It's got to be middle class people dying. Otherwise, they don't danger. count. Yeah, there, uh, the the point of course is taken. There is, however, a danger that. What this leads to, and, and I think the declaration of, of sort of fairly indiscriminate declaration of climate emergencies actually plays into this. The, the danger is that we need not only to do something now, but to be seen to do something now. And actually, <laughs> what may be the right thing to do is to do less, mm-hmm. to slow down. Because the first thing that happens if you start doing stuff is you increase carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. So we need to step back and do some proper thinking about you know, the, about the future and then work out how to get there. Because what's happened at the moment is that industry is in bed with energy. 
Mm. So you've got a department, Bayes, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. You know, so industry, what a surprise, has a massive influence on energy strategy. That's actually not how we want things. We need a department for sustainability. And that paper I spoke of earlier even calls for that. Because at the moment, the setup is just wrong. It's wrong politically. It's wrong economically. Um, and it, it's going to be hard to solve. And if we start rushing into action, we'll end up you know, with unintended consequences. That's, that's I think the danger both, with the uh, I think it's both because we. I think you can take that theme of like um, pausing and thinking. You talked about that before, about the need, again, coming back to what Marina had said, of understanding. So we do have to like... Be, you know, don't go out and start doing things until you understand what you're doing. But you also have to start doing certain things. And the doing isn't necessarily the kind of, the doing is the slow work of organising and communicating. And actually to be in community with people, that's the doing that like you can start with. And um, because that's the thinking that happens that also starts to build capacity around these new ideas. So like it's a, it's a messy place and you do have to extract systems that are winning from each other so that we can change that but that also takes a sort of an action to do so yeah you say we learn by doing Mm. which is fine yes and successful stories uh we find at the local level we Mm. find street by street retrofit neighborhood it's the local authorities so my my where i come i i would say more funding to local authorities. Uh, we need more groups to support retrofit, to support these values that uh, people have, their needs, um, and to listen to them. But you need people with power, not values, to uh, to enable that. Like the people values, they can guide the hand of the folk with power, but the powerful need to embrace what's in front of you. I mean, that's why I was interested by the story about your app, like because. Like I've spoken to a bunch of people in affluent circles, like particularly affluent circles. And like I'm a fellow with an accent, so I might not get taken as seriously. But when I start talking to people on the subject of retrofit, their eyes widen and they embrace the conversation very quickly, which I found really illuminating. You know, rich people love the idea of retrofit is a, a very crass takeaway I took from it. And like what I've read about the app that you're putting together, which is uh, an app which will enable people to assess, risk manage, and understand, learn about projects they may be setting out to embark upon. Sounds really interesting because there appear to be no reliable resources for how to approach retrofit projects that are publicly available. There's a lot of training and learning behind uh, paywalls. And there's lots of fragmented uh, information out there, but not like a centralised point of access. Do you want to tell us? I mean, I could be well off the mark as well because I've only read the abstracts on your website and the the bits on your LinkedIn page. Would you mind telling us a bit about the the project you're working on? Well, the it was in 2019 uh, the app, and it was the development of uh, a beta version uh, of the Eco Retrofit app. So it was I was leading the project because it came uh, as an output from um, several years of research on risks, and it was looking 
process risks and uh, uh, technical risks. So the up, uh, it was uh, something that it was covering as a risk management uh, tool, but also as a learning platform. And it was to be used by any user. So it has a different levels of knowledge that someone could collect from the uh, get from the app. So if I'm a, a homeowner and I want to change my uh, uh, my uh, windows, uh, it gives me the risk of that interface when the windows of the technical risks that you have, but also the process risks. Who is responsible to do the work to do the job of replacing my windows, uh, what skills needs to have, what tools they are out there. So it gives you the process risks that you can uh, have in case that you don't take some aspects in, in consideration. That was the beta version, uh, the development of the beta version. So uh, the next stage of, of that uh, app is to develop it as a as a product cool so are you guys you work into any sort of timeline or is there any sort of early access to this there were there there isn't a timeline right now because uh that we trialed the project during covid uh then after covid there were other projects that i was involved so it was paused uh but we'll start again the discussions uh this uh autumn so it it is posed and the beta version uh, developed some entries of the app. So looking some of the aspects of the technical process uh, risks. Because it seems like an apposite proposition dealing with what's incoming this winter. If you're talking in terms of stimulating a retrofit market to grow, you need the people with the money to do so. And that's why I'm focusing on the affluent folk, because once you start building the, the craftsmen, the tradesmen, the, the meisters, of this industry and to your point earlier about wanting it to become more of a stem subject i think like the looking at pathology is a good way of doing that but you've got to get the people who bestow status who are able to confer status on people in order for it to raise in status we're working on a project with the uh, ac white and their skills academy is trying to take influence from the the german model where tradesmen can become master craftsmen or master tradesmen, meisters, and they have proper status in their communities, in their society. They're not a bricky or a sparky or a chippy. They're a tradesman, a master of his craft. And that's the sort of thing you need to get into here. But you're not going to get into it because we live in such a, I mean, this is specifically the UK, because it's such a class-riddled country. Like, until you address status in those terms, you know, you're not really going to get there. So, I mean, uh, sorry, Sarah, you can jump in uh, in just a second. I just wanted to find out, like, what did you learn from the, the beta testing? Like, did you find what felt like a viable product or... Like how did your users respond to we, it? We tested during COVID and it was the first year of COVID. So you can imagine that a lot of project sites were closed. So we tested again when the people start to going uh, more regularly in and the cluster that uh, the, the group of people that uh, we, we tested, it was uh, architects, project managers, and we had some builders as well. Then we tested with a couple of homeowners that they were... Uh, having some retrofit works in their uh, in their houses they were generally a positive 
input. Um, they it was a beta version, so uh, we had a lot of feedback coming back and say it's not very user friendly and graphics, but it's a beta version, so people couldn't understand that in a beta version you don't have the the environment that interface which is the user friendly to the customer. So that's why we need to now. Um, you know, uh, take it forward. And now that things are open, uh, see the next stages of that uh, project. Oh, well, we should have a talk another time. Sorry, yeah. Sarah. Well, I think I think what's um, different about this in the tech space or app space that people can feel like suspicious about is that what you're talking about is the management of first principles, the management of what sits behind things as opposed to saying, oh, you should do this to your building. You should do that. It's not a measures-based thing. It's um, it's digging into how and exposing how people need to explore the interfaces, the risk points, the care points, all of that sort of stuff, which is, which is actually a very useful tool. And I think sounds like something that needs to be managed by not somebody taking ownership of it and becoming this branded object, but something that needs to be very clearly, objectively managed so that it can be accessed by the many and not by not sitting behind another incredible paywall, I think is a really important for that. That was the principle of our project uh, anyway, and that's where, where it blocked because that needs uh, maintenance over time and as a research group we cannot keep that uh, maintenance over time unless we are doing only the up and not doing any unless other research. Unless we can get research. some of these affluent people that Dan's been chatting to <laughs> just yes. hand over money. Yes, and a what it needs is what it does is to flag up the problem, uh, flag up the attention here there might be a risk so Mm-hmm. You need to see that kind of detail. You need to talk to these people to avoid the risk. It doesn't tell you that you need to do this and that and that. It's not a decision-making tool. It just flag up and highlights where there are risks. It's a very simple thing, but that's the problem that we find. And it's based in evidence. Uh, so it's collect big amounts of evidence, big, uh, large uh, uh, projects and evidence that came over the years in retrofit interesting oh man we should definitely talk about this uh offline jeff and i are involved in another project the low energy buildings database which is about collecting yeah. i mean it's a certification tool cool. they are counterparts and if we could talk about how we might work together on those to ensure one supports the other i think there could yeah, be absolutely man, you could amplify a lot of the value One one thing that occurs to me as well, Marina, uh, this is just for the development, as they say here as well, but um, have you tried applying it to or or considered applying it to a building that has been retrofitted to show how how badly it was done? No. (laughs) You you did raise at one point about the sort of um, aims. And um, when I'm doing any kind of retrofit plan for an organisation, I always ask, you know, what are you really trying to achieve from from the retrofit? Because even if it's framed purely in carbon terms, then I think, again, we come back to the embodied energy thing. So if a client is educated about embodied energy, that makes their decision-making process different. So, you know, I think whether you're just trying to achieve a low-energy building in operation uh, is, is different from if you're trying to put together a retrofit plan, which which delivers for... The occupants of the community 
um, uh, and the owners uh, all at the same time. I think we've got to be very careful at the outset to ask those those key questions. Absolutely. I, I will love, Nigel, uh, maybe it's to the front of the day, but I'd love to to have a, a, a chinwag with you about embodied versus operational. You know, because, of course, the thing is, we, we find that because we've been getting deeper into the subject of the magazine over the last couple of years, you know, getting I mean, I even did did some embodied carbon calcs myself um, on a project in the last issue, uh, which is a really interesting experience. Um, but I think the thing that I find encouraging and hopeful from this is that through the process of looking at it, at, at, at number crunching this, um, you very quickly find, especially with, with manufacturers starting to be, you know, uh, becoming competitive with each other and so on, and trying to, to, to get one open to it does focus the mind on trying to find ways. It doesn't have to be either or. You know, there there are going to be ways of of, of tackling both, um, yeah. and, and it might mean transformative approaches. And a lot of the time, it is going to be telling people, "Stop it! Stop doing things." <laughs> you know, that's definitely a, a large part of it. But but there are going to be ways to enable you to um to, to find the sweet spot where you where you get both mm-hmm. done basically. Absolutely, and only if, if, for example, we can use. Know, waste um, forestry residues to to create vapor open insulation pro- products made locally. Most of them are imported at the moment, um, and, and then we can get local materials and local labour in, into our retrofit process uh, at very very low embodied energy. Then then it starts to to make a lot more sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I was really uh, I, I was going to say amused, but obviously that's not the right word. That. Uh, Marina referenced the difficulties in seeing the the project through uh, because of the funding model. But you've got to find people to give you money to enable you to launch the app. And you've got to go seeking private funding, unfortunately. That's the nature of the beast. Until we can get all those people involved and turn it into something a bit more self-sustaining, we're stuck with it, aren't we? It's a bit desperate. Oh, well. No, Let's do our best. Honestly, I have a word with you. <laughs> Man, it is desperate. Like, it, would be, it wouldn't be termed a climate emergency if it wasn't desperate. It would be a climate fun time. Yeah, but I mean, the point the point is that we've got to leave our lovely listeners at the end of this feeling some way hopeful. And I think I am when I know that, you know, a lot of this research is in the hands of minds like Marina and Nigel and um, and that they're here sharing very openly the work that they're doing that allows us to build connections to see this stuff go on, to see this stuff be tools that can be used in those transformation transformative um ways so that's where i want to leave it on (laughs) and also also sarah i think we can say that because we're wrapping up now um the bad man is going to stop saying the bad things okay so you know the pain will end okay Uh, go go and enjoy yourselves for a while and go and burn something or do something fun It was really, really great and such a, yeah, so many more things that we could talk about and, and we surely will. Thank you very much for your time, both of you, and um, we'll speak again. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.